Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. unique things is if the rest of the world loses interest in them, their value evaporates overnight. So when I was a boy, it was all the rage in the United States to collect beer cans, vintage beer cans. You know, if you found a 20-year-old can with a pop top, uh, Bullfrog beer from Wisconsin was the most valuable can that you could find. And I had about 600 cans. I had a fairly formidable collection that was probably worth thousands of dollars at the time. Well, fast forward 30 years, when my mother insisted that I take these cans out of the crawl space in our house, nobody collects beer cans anymore. So this vintage collection, the only value it had left was recycling. In the Bullfrog beer, people looked at it as kind of a rusted can and said, well, you know, what's so good about that? It doesn't even have beer in it anymore. Uh, so the uniqueness can be a bit of a dangerous game. The greatest wealth is to live content with a little. The insightful words of Greek philosopher Plato. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What is money? How do we understand it? And is making it an art? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with one of the sharpest brains in finance, Dr. Charles Whelan of Dartmouth College in the US, the author of the best-selling Naked Economics and Naked Statistics series, whose latest instalment, Naked Money, a revealing look at our financial system, explores some of the cultural, political and psychological kinks around money. In Naked Money, Charles Whelan argues, for most people, the most attractive thing about the Bitcoin has been its steadily rising value. If you buy an asset primarily in the hope that it will rise in value, you are speculating. And if you are speculating on an asset that has no underlying value, watch out for the bubble. The greater fool theory, buying something today in the belief that someone else will pay more for it tomorrow, has had a seat at the table of every bubble in the history of human civilization. So what determines the value of anything, and is it all a confidence game? My name is Charlie Whelan. I teach public policy at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire in the United States. I spent many years before that teaching at the University of Chicago. My doctorate actually is in public policy. So although I'm interested in monetary policy and statistics and economics, my real passion is applying all of these things to the important issues of the day. Naked Money is my most recent book. It's the, the third in the Naked series, which is not quite as bad as it sounds. I first wrote Naked Economics, and the idea was to take the most important concepts and strip away some of the extraneous detail. I then wrote Naked Statistics, which did the same thing, and now we're at Naked Money, which looks at what money is, how central banks work, things like the euro and other monetary agreements, because they have a huge impact on day-to-day life. Really well done, Charlie, on the book. I have to say I learned a lot about financial systems and the whole nature of economic play um, in in global politics and and social structures. You asked some tremendous questions in this book that are so relevant to how we're all living and operating in the world. So hats off to you on that one. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and we can play it by ear from there. What do you think the euro has accomplished? 
Well, the euro certainly has accomplished more economic integration, as has the European Union in general. I traveled in Europe in the 1980s and, of course, did all the border stops every time I crossed from Czechoslovakia to Germany, from East Germany to West Germany, from Germany to France, which is quite disruptive for a traveler. One can think about the euro as doing the same thing only for trade. So now if you're selling potatoes uh, in Germany from France, you no longer have to stop, pay a different custom, and most important, operate with a different currency, a different exchange rate, an exchange rate that may fluctuate over time. So it eases both travel for those of us who are moving through the borders, uh, that's the, the wider integration, but then it also eases the uncertainty that arises when countries are using different currencies. You argue, though, in the book that the future of the euro is to some degree in question. So I'm just wondering about that. It's highly uncertain. I mean, one thing to do is to step back and compare the United States to the European Union. Both of them are about the same size geographically. They're broadly similar in population. They each have distinct political units. If you think about the 50 United States and all the European nations that have adopted the euro. So one might think that both of them are equally stable. After all, there's really no discussion of the United States each adopting a different currency. That would be silliness. The difference is that the European Union does not have some of the features and institutions that make the United States dollar work. In particular, there's less labor mobility. There is, of course, a legal guarantee that people can move across the European Union, but there are strong cultural reasons that somebody might not be able to relocate, say, from Italy to Germany in search of jobs, and that makes the integration less perfect. It's also true that there are not the same macro stabilizers across the European Union that there are in the United States. One of the things that makes the dollar work is if part of the United States is in economic distress, say because of low oil prices, Texas and Oklahoma are struggling, the federal government in the United States can move resources, payments, it can lower taxes in the affected region and so on, so that it can ease the differential in economic output between regions, which then takes any pressure off the currency. The European Union has a lot fewer tools in that regard. So part of what puts stress on the euro is the lack of economic integration to kind of make it complete. It's all very ironic, isn't it? I know you, that you argue somewhere in the book that the US dollar is the greatest form of currency that could ever have been conceived because it gives that stability. Well, any kind of paper currency is really kind of a, is a miracle. So the, the mere fact that we've moved from shells and bags of salt and tobacco to a gold-backed currency, which wreaked all kinds of havoc in the 1930s, to a piece of paper that, you know, the dollar being widely respected around the world. I just finished a long trip. And a $100 bill, believe me, will get me just about anything I want in any country on the planet. So, and it's just a piece of paper. So that the currency itself is a remarkable uh, evolution, but also the fact that the, the dollar itself, because so many people recognize and respect it around the world, is an amazing economic production. I've done a lot of traveling and um I will always go with a dollar. It's no matter what part of the world I'm going to, Southeast Asia, South America, uh, Africa, wherever. Because no matter what type of jam you get into, people understand whatever service they're providing or whatever situation you want to get in or get out of. Uh, the $20, $40, whatever. It's ultimately recognisable as mobility, so to speak, isn't it? It is. Now, that said, you'll find some very quirky things as you travel. So I was in Myanmar, where they're only happy to get their dollars. 
but they will only take currency issued after 2006. Now, here in the United States, that makes no sense whatsoever. Nobody, if you give them a $100 bill, they don't care if it was produced in 2002 or 2006 or 2017. But once people in that country understand that other people only accept bills issued after a certain date, then they will only accept bills issued after a certain date. They also required that the bills be perfectly crisp, not even a single crease, as if they had just come from the mint which again, in the United States would be unrecognizable. You can wad up a bill and send it through the washing machine and somebody will still take it. So there's a certain degree to which other people's expectations about what currency will be accepted then determines what currency I'm willing to accept. There's a certain confidence game embedded in all of this. Yeah, it's funny, like if you travel to India and, you know, you, you throw out some rupees no matter what situation you're in, you can have the most dirtiest rupees uh, half torn and people will accept it. Whereas if you go to places, you know, some parts of Africa, they get very touchy about the the uh, hygienic quality of their money and also what date it was um, produced. And uh, there's a huge amount of paranoia on it. It can be very unsettling for as a traveller, can't it? It absolutely can. And of course, you as the traveler then continue that tradition. So as soon as you learn in one of these countries that people won't accept a torn bill, then you'll stop accepting a torn bill, which means other people won't accept a torn bill. So, you know, there is a certain amount of confidence that underlies any currency in any place. What you have to appreciate what other people are willing to accept, and that will in turn shape your beliefs about what you're willing to accept, which then feeds back into the larger system. I mean, when you think about some of this stuff, it kind of may, it can be a bit mind-blowing. Yeah, but counterfeit money is a reality no matter where you go to. Whether you can be in Ireland, America, you can be parts of Africa, Central America, wherever it is, it makes no difference. It is a reality, and it's just that in certain countries you're more um, uh, tuned into it because there is much more of the black market. Yes, and there's some stories in the book about intriguing counter- counterfeit things. So, you know, one is that North Korea, which is continues to be in the headlines for all kinds of nefarious activities. One of those activities that gets less attention than, say, the nuclear weapons or incarcerating American tourists is they're quite good counterfeiters. And so North Korea is notorious for counterfeiting the American $100 bill, and it's one way that the country can pay its bills. Now, on the other hand, there are stories, Somalia is one place, where people have willingly accepted what they knew to be counterfeit bills because they were so well done that they circulated almost as well as the originals. And then, of course, in Somalia, because the central government had collapsed and so on. So even counterfeit money has some strange elements to it. What's the difference between money and wealth? I imagine as an economist and as an, an academic, you would look at it as vastly different, do you? They are, in fact, vastly different. So money is best thought of as a subset of wealth. It's one tiny piece, often, of your wealth. And it's the only piece of your wealth that's highly liquid meaning that you can use it almost immediately to conduct a transaction. So, for example, as I look around my, my office here, I have a beautiful print by a famous photographer on the wall. I probably play, paid $800 for it. That's not money, because if I take it off the wall and carry it to the golf course and say, I'd like to play this afternoon and get a lesson, here's, an, here's a framed print. They're going to look at me cross-eyed. Uh, so there are all kinds of things um, Jewelry is hard to, to make liquid because you've got to find somebody who's willing to sell it. Real estate, obviously, is a source of wealth, but it's difficult to use to conduct transactions. So money, particularly in the form of dollar bills or other things like that, 
is the, the piece of wealth that we use to conduct transactions quite easily. What do you think most about at night, money or wealth? I think a lot more about wealth. <laughs> there's, a, there's a story in the book that, you know, Warren Buffett at any given moment might not have much money. You know, if I, if I show up and Warren happens to be behind me at Starbucks and he's left his wallet behind, he may have no money. Warren Buffett could have no money just because his wallet's empty. Uh, but I would certainly rather have his wealth <laughs> than his money. Uh, he's got plenty of wealth. So wealth at the end of the day is what determines our well-being. And for most of us, if you have stocks and bonds and real estate, with a little bit of work, you can turn some of that money into wealth. But if you have you know, $1,000 in your wallet and no other wealth, you're really not that well off. I'm just wondering, you spent so much time understanding and writing about money and economic systems. Just wondering, do you think we ever get an honest answer about from anybody about money? Because whether it's friends, family, employers, whatever it is, you know what I mean? You don't have to be bartering to actually try and get the crude reality and facts about what people are doing with their money. We get all very paranoid, private and a bit tricky when it comes to money in all aspects of our life, don't we? Like if you ask somebody about their wages or if you, you know, the price of their house and stuff, it can be very, um, it can be very off, you know? It is. You know, there was a New Yorker article a while back that said people systematically lie about three things, money, sex, and the length of their commute. <laughs> so I, I don't know whether the, the commute one applies in Ireland or not, but it certainly does in the United States. People always downplay the length of their commute because they're wasting so much time and they realize that sex is quite obvious and money for all the reasons that you outlined. But this is one reason, by the way, that I think we're never going to get away, get get rid of paper currency like the dollar or the euro, even with the rise of Bitcoin and checking accounts and credit cards. And the reason is that there's a certain amount of anonymity that derives from having a $100 bill. Nobody needs to know who's got it. Nobody needs to know where you spent it. That's obviously great for criminals, so it can be a problem. But I think the rest of us also appreciate the degree to which we can use cash and not necessarily leave tracks behind. Do you think it could be argued that some countries or some nationalities are more, um, how shall I say, more direct about money than others? Like whether it's the Italians can be a bit messy or whatever it is. Do you think there's some kind of national characteristics about money? Because, again, if we come back to India, you know, one of the enjoyable aspects of going to and travelling to India is besides some of the wonderful food and interesting sights to see is all the bartering and messing around money like it's a bit of a laugh do you know what I mean but there's other countries that you know you it just it all becomes very firm like if you ever go to Japan and uh, there's no messing as to price there's no negotiating it's this and that it alone you know oh I think that's one of the joys of travel as you alluded to and again I've just come back from a nine-month trip there are all kinds of differentials both about how people deal with money and transactions, the haggling. I mean, there are certain countries in Africa and Southeast Asia where people are deeply offended if you don't bargain over something. Uh, I don't think the Germans and, as you said, the Japanese are quite so keen on bargaining. In the United States, you can bargain for a few things, but not many. But I also think there are differences about the use of cash, for example. Some societies are much more cash-intensive. India was one of them, and as people may have read recently, Prime Minister Modi made a dramatic change there. India used people who used particularly the rich used a lot of cash sometimes to avoid taxes sometimes to avoid black market activities being detected and what Prime Minister Modi did was eliminate some of the higher rupee bills I think maybe the two thousand rupee note I may get it get it wrong but 
essentially er eradicated all the big rupee notes and said you have, I think, 24 hours to turn them in for smaller notes in hopes of flushing out all this dark money from the system and going forward, making it hard for people on the black market to deal uh, with their nefarious activities because they had to use so many small bills. Uh, so, yes, there are vast differences across, across countries in how people talk about wealth, how they conduct business with money, and with the money itself. You could also argue there, Charlie, that in a relationship, whether it's in a marriage or whatever it is, um, money plays a big part and how two different people will handle and understand and the risks they're willing to take with money can be quite a deciding factor whether the relationship will stay together or not. Because, you know, money is so central to life. So if one is rather careless or two, another, let's say, lover likes to take, you know, massive gambles with money, that can be perilous, can't it? Oh, absolutely. On, on many dimensions, several of which you alluded to, obviously, wealth is a big source of contention. People have different notions of what it means to be rich or to be content. So they may have very different notions about how they want to spend their time, whether somebody wants to work ceaselessly so that they can have lots of money in the bank. Other people may want to enjoy the moment and live more simply. I mean, that's a fundamental life question. But there's also a certain amount uh, to a degree to which money is power. And of course, you bring two people into a relationship with their different resources that they bring into the relationship, different earning powers. And so they, they, you have to navigate that. Uh, so there's no doubt, but that money and wealth uh, and the employment that generates it are serious stressors in any relationship. And also, how much is enough? Somebody may be happy at 60 to retire with a couple of quid in the bank and um, others, you know, would find, you know, unless they have a minimum of a certain large amount that they will be taking a risk and they need to work till they're 70. It's amazing all, you know, you could get a whole group of friends together and how much is enough, whether it's how much we pay ourselves, how much we think we're worth, or even how much is, you know, what price or value you put on um, possessions or certain aspects certain things in your life. It's also, it's also varied, isn't it? It is. And I'm surprised that people have actually not spent even more time discussing this question of how much is enough. I, I think we as Americans are particularly guilty of not thinking very deeply about it. I mean, here we are in one of the richest countries in the history of human civilization. And most of us get two weeks of vacation. I mean, the Europeans put us to shame, in part because those cultures have said, you know, this many weeks of work is enough. And we'd rather spend four or five or six weeks of leisure with our family than have more stuff which we can purchase by working those extra weeks. That's an important question. The retirement is an important question. You know, I said at the outset that I'd written some books on economics. When you go back and look at some of the big thinkers in economics, most of them assumed that as society got richer, we would work fewer and fewer hours. You go back to, the, say, the 1920s, and people assumed that if we became twice as rich, we would only work 20 hours a week. So it is kind of a puzzle that as we've grown steadily richer, we continue to work 40 and 50 hours a week and then buy bigger houses, more cars, and things of that nature. Perhaps because of the environmental implications, we may revisit that question again. Well, I would think that time is wealth and within that peace of mind and that you can't put a price on that, that that is what, what life is all about. It is. I mean, I suppose you can, you can try and put a price on it, it to the extent that if someone's going to offer me money to, say, write another article or do another book, I know pretty much how much time I'm going to have to give up. 
and really it is the time. I mean, certainly all my basic needs are met. My kids are going to go to college. I eat every day. My house is fine. Uh, so at that point, I am explicitly trading off the time it will take against whatever they're going to pay me to do it. But I, I agree with your fundamental premise, premise, which is you can create more money, you can buy more stuff, but each of us, Warren Buffett or me or Bill Gates, only has 24 hours in the day. I'm just wondering, in your acknowledgements, um, you write that the book was very hard to write and you say it's the substance is hard. And you, you talk about the challenges in, um, you know, writing about financial systems and monetary policy in, in terms of making it interesting and accessible to readers. So can you tell me about that? Because it's interesting that money pervades every aspect of our lives and relationships and our lived experience of the world. Yet it's also seen as a very nerdy and uninteresting and um, stuffy topic. It is. Most people just take it for granted. You know, you've got some bills in your wallet and when you go to the coffee shop, they'll give you what you need in exchange for those bills. Why give it much more thought? The book was difficult on many levels. The first was kind of this theoretical, philosophical, which is how is it that I can take something that is just a piece of paper? I mean, there really is no more intrinsic wealth embedded in a euro note or dollar than just the piece of paper on which it's printed. You can't take it to the central bank and get gold or rice or anything official from the government. How is it that something with no intrinsic value actually works perfectly well in the case of the $100 bill you mentioned earlier, all over the world, even though it's just a piece of paper. I mean, you kind of have to – I spent a 